Hello and welcome to this special spooktacular edition of The Naked Scientists, recorded in the decidedly creepy setting of the Cambridge Science Centre in front of this wonderful audience. This time we're looking at the science of the supernatural. But first, let's meet our ghoulish guests, who are supernatural scientist Chris French. He's head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths, University of London. Chris finds out whether psychics really are psychic. He also finds out what makes people say they've seen a ghost. Sitting next to Chris is Jane Aspel. She's a senior lecturer in psychology at Anglia Ruskin University. Jane works on out-of-body experiences, including inducing these experiences in other people to see what happens to their brains in the process. David Spiegelhalter is a statistician and a professor of the public understanding of risk at Cambridge University. He looks into the science of coincidence. And Deborah Hyde is sitting next to David. She's the editor of Skeptic magazine. Deborah likes nothing more than to get her teeth into tales of vampires, werewolves and other scary brutes. And next to her, Gustav Kuhn is a psychologist and also a magician from Goldsmiths University of London. He'll be showing us some magic tricks during the show. Also with us in the Kitchen Science Corner, please show your appreciation and give a warm welcome to the ghoulish Ginny Smith and the horrible Hannah Critchlow. Hello! What have you two got in store for us today? So we're going to be inducing not an entirely out-of-body experience, but a little, a little mini version of one, and we're going to be making some slime with things that you can try at home. Please show your appreciation and give a warm welcome to our guest panel this week. Now, Chris French is the head of the Anomalistic Psychology Unit at Goldsmiths. Chris, what does that actually mean in plain English? Okay, well, anomalistic psychology is basically the psychology of weird stuff. It's everything from people who think they've seen ghosts, people who think they've been abducted by aliens, people who think that they have psychic powers. And my general approach is I'm not convinced that any of those things are really true. So I'm interested in the psychology behind it. What makes people think? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We do actually spend quite a lot of our time also directly testing paranormal claims. So we'll get psychics in, say, do your stuff under properly controlled conditions. And guess what? (laughs) No, they're not. (laughs) What fraction of the public claim to be psychic? It's probably not an awful lot who would actually claim to be psychic. A sizable, a sizable minority, I'd say. But in terms of how many people believe in the paranormal, then you're typically looking at at least half the population believing at least one or other paranormal claim. So it's really interesting to ask the question, well, what is it that's going on when people think they've experienced something psychic and can we explain it in kind of normal psychological terms? And I think very often we can. Well, can we do a quick test? Hands up here if... If you believe in ghosts, oh, you're a skeptical bunch. Yeah, well, just just so everyone at home knows, okay, there's about a hundred people here, and I can count about five hands up. Hands up if you're a liar. <laughs> there's a few more hands gone up. Okay, so but not particularly. That's very very atypical. I mean, you would, for, for example, on the question of ghosts, you would typically find about forty percent of people would say that they believe in ghosts, and of those, quite a lot of them would say they have personally experienced a ghost. What about if we phrase the question slightly differently? Who here has had an experience they can't explain that you think might have some kind of bizarre reason behind it? 
So a few more hands are going up. Is that more reflective, Chris? Yeah, again, bear in mind we are at the Cambridge Science Centre <laughs> and this is probably not a typical audience. We've got an audience of people who are probably quite into science, probably have a different attitude to the, to the general public. So, no, that's not very representative at all. <laughs> so when you put these sorts of psychic phenomena to the test, what sorts of things do you test and how do you test them fairly? Well, again, it, it, it very much depends on the specific claim. If we test a psychic, for example, the kind of thing we'd do would be... I mean, psychics claim that they can tell you all about yourself just using their psychic powers. They don't use any of the normal senses. It's not just guesswork. They just use their psychic powers. So what we would do might be, for example, to get a number of volunteers in to have a reading done by these psychics. But we'd do it slightly differently the way they usually operate. We'd have the people sitting behind a screen so they couldn't see them. We would have a situation where they don't actually ask them any questions, there's no conversation, they just use their psychic powers, they write down their reading. And we'll then take those readings for, say, five, six volunteers, get the volunteers to come back and read through all of the different readings and choose the one that was done for them. Now, if the psychics can really do what they say they can do, then there ought to be one reading there that is all about you personally, lots of personal details. And guess what? It just doesn't happen. You know, they, they actually come out just at what you'd expect on the basis of chance. Guess what? The tabloid newspapers sacked their man who did the stars. And then they said the next after they said they'd sacked him, they wrote, he didn't see it coming. <laughs> Anyone here been to a psychic reading or, or anything like that? Anyone had that experience? Yeah, someone's, would you mind just telling us, what, what, why did you go out of, of interest or, or something? Can I just ask you? Yeah, so um, I was working in Thailand at the time on malaria, and it's really, really big in Thailand. And so I, I, it was partly to get involved with the culture and understand, you know, why people go. And there was a bit of a language barrier going on, but, you know, it was, it was an interesting experience to see why so many students, and these were based in universities, so people would go to universities uh, the students would go go to where they're based and you know talk about it, and it was it was interesting to see. So big cultural differences, Chris. Yeah, there will be huge cultural differences, but what you will find is that across any culture, any society you care to look at, either historically or geographically, there will be people who claim they have these special powers, there'll be lots of people who believe that these claims are true, and there'll be lots of people who claim they have had personal experience of the paranormal. Anyone like to ask Chris any questions about actually how he does his research? Sophie from Blenheim. Do you think that ghosts are real? Do you think that even if it doesn't prove that they're real, do you think they're real just because it would be cool if they're real? (laughs) (laughs) I think it would be cool if they're real. And certainly when I was your age, I was absolutely convinced that ghosts existed and I couldn't sleep without a nightlight. I was terrified. Uh, But the more psychology I I learned, the more I realised that there are ways that your mind can play tricks on you. You can think you're seeing things and hearing things that aren't really there. You can get yourself worked up into a state. And, I mean, we can actually kind of demonstrate these kinds of effects under controlled conditions where we can set up situations where people see things, like I said, that aren't actually really there. I've actually got one kind of quite nice example of that, if you let me uh, demonstrate that to you. This is not actually something where people are seeing things that aren't there, but one of the things that a lot of paranormal investigation groups do when they go in 
with all their bits of equipment to, to investigate a haunted location, there's something called electronic voice phenomenon, or EVP. And what these people claim is that if you go into these locations which are supposed to be haunted and you have a recording device on, that if you record just all the background noise and then play it back, you can actually hear spirit voices. Now, it's interesting that when the people that do this do it, they like to use really old bits of equipment. They don't like modern equipment that gives you very nice, clear, crisp recordings. They like stuff that gives you lots of background hissy noises. And then when they play it back, yeah, you kind of think you can hear something going on. Now, the explanation of what's going on is that sometimes you probably are genuinely recording real people, voices. They are really voices there. I mean, I did a, a daytime TV show a couple of years back and one of these investigators was playing this EVP and it was, without a doubt, someone singing Celine Dion songs. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying, I have to admit, but I don't think it was a ghost. Now, if you go on the, onto the various websites, you can play this stuff. So sometimes you're getting real voices, sometimes you're just getting speech-like sounds. The interesting thing is, if you go on these websites, you typically can't figure out what the message is until you read what you're supposed to be hearing. And then you kind of think, yeah, I can kind of hear that. So what I'd like to do is play you some examples. These are genuine examples of EVP. And you see if you can figure out what the, what the spirits are supposed to be saying. I think that uh, you'll have difficulty. But these are fairly typical kinds of recordings. So here we go. There's the first one. Anybody? Hands up if you think you can hear it. Something at the back there. Barry. Barry, OK, I mean, that's not too far away from what it says on the website, but it's not quite right. I'll give it to you again. Sorry. Anybody? Anybody else put their hand up if you know somebody here? I'm sorry. That's very good. It's actually we're sorry. I'll play it again so that you can get it. Here, here we go. We're sorry. sorry. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I'll just give you one more example. See if you know what this one says. Any offers? What do you think a ghost would say? Think about what the kind of thing you think a ghost would say. I think that time I heard, I am a ghost. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, what would you expect a ghost to say? It's, come and find the cake. <laughs> OK, so I'll play it again. And this time, see if you can hear it. It's, come and find the cake. Yeah, it's, come and find the cake, isn't it? Except I've played a little trick on you there, because according to the website that we took that from, that's not the message. The message is supposed to be, someone's in the way. Now, I must admit to me, whenever I hear it now, I always hear, come and find the cake. <laughs> but I'm going to play it to you again and see if you can hear it as someone's in the way. Because that's how some people hear it. <laughs> now, it's come and find the cake. It is. No. I mean... What that illustrates is the way that when we've got kind of very ambiguous, very degraded stimuli, you're not quite sure what any of that is, you can read meaning into it. And I think that explains an awful lot of the time when people think they've seen a ghost in the shadows or they think they've heard something, think they've heard a voice, etc. There are lots of other things that can come into play as well, but that's one example. Hello, I'm Maria from Cambridge. I'm just really curious, the psychics you work with or people who think they can see or hear, when they finished working with you, does anybody ever, ever say, oh, my God, maybe I've got it wrong? Well, um, you'll be amazed to know that on one occasion when we tested a psychic, we did the test, she got the results, she said, well, I should have been able to pass that test. 
I'm gobsmacked. That was her term. I'm gobsmacked. And we thought, well, that's unusual, because usually they start making all kinds of excuses. We always bend over backwards to make sure that they're happy with the test before we start. No point in doing it otherwise. We get them to sign something to say it's a fair test. And afterwards, when they fail, they typically say, oh, it wasn't a fair test after all. You know, this woman, actually, it looked like she was going to be the first one ever to say, well, I should have been able to do that. Within a day or two, she changed her mind and decided it wasn't a fair test after all. There's a question that's come in via Facebook. Stephen Quill has been in touch saying, what's the most spooky experience one of the panel has ever encountered? <laughs> uh, I have spent very, very, very many nights in supposedly haunted houses. And I must confess, it's about as exciting as watching paint dry. <laughs> And I find myself sitting there thinking, why am I doing this? And then I remember, because it's usually for a TV programme, so I remember, <laughs> ah, it's because they're paying me. <laughs> uh, Ginny and Hannah. So we're going to show you that you maybe can't always trust everything that you hear. I want everyone to listen to this and think about what you can hear, what it sounds like. It's quite spooky, isn't it? What does it sound like? Anyone can anyone describe it for me? Hi, I'm Harry. I'm from Coldicott. Is it someone playing the piano? It might be the piano. I don't know what instrument it is. It could be the piano. Which? What does it sound like? Is it going up or down? Isn't it the same few notes played over and over again? What did everyone else think? Does it sound like it's staying the same? Sounded like it was going up up a scale, up a spooky scale. Give us a cheer if you agree. Did anyone think it was going down? No, no. So it sounds like it's going up. Let's have another listen. I think it sounds a bit like someone creeping upstairs, going up and up and up. Would you all believe me if I told you that's not actually going up and up forever? It's an all an illusion. So we're going to need someone to help us prove that. What's your name? Malcolm. Malcolm, will you come and join us on stage? So in front of Malcolm, we've got a big speaker and surrounding the speaker, a little um, kind of almost like piano keys, which Malcolm, we're going to get you to hit each one of the piano keys in turn going round the speaker. And now Malcolm is right back at the beginning and he's continuing going round. And what's happening, Malcolm? It's just getting higher. The notes are just getting higher. So even though you're hitting the same keys of the piano almost, the notes sound to you like they're getting higher. Mm-hmm. But how can that make sense? Not sure. <laughs> Round of applause. So this is a really clever illusion because it felt like you could have just kept playing them over and over again and it would have got higher and higher. But actually when you think about it, that ending note wasn't actually any higher than the one we started on. So what's going on here is they're not actually one single note. You've got lots of different frequencies, lots of different pitches being played together. And each time you move one note along, each of those notes goes up a step but the one at the very top disappears and you add a new one below. So you can imagine it like a whole load of lines moving up on a page, but when they get to the top of the page, they fall off and you add an extra one below. So although each individual note within that chord is going up every time you play the next one, 
the whole overall thing isn't getting any higher. And it's kind of like, I don't know if anyone's seen the drawing of Escher's staircase. It's this really cool illusion where it looks like you could just keep walking up and up the staircase forever, but it actually goes round in a circle. And You can think of this as a kind of auditory version of that visual illusion. But it just shows that we can't always trust our brains and we can't always trust what we think we hear. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and this week, in this special pre-recorded edition of the programme, we're looking at the science of the supernatural here at the Cambridge Science Centre. Jane Aspel is a senior lecturer at Anglia Ruskin University where she investigates the phenomena known as out-of-body experiences. But what, what actually is an out-of-body experience? What, what do people understand by that term? What do they mean by it? Well, people commonly associate them with near-death experiences. You have the idea that somebody is that their self or their soul is leaving their body when they're on a deathbed or in a hospital bed. But scientists have looked at many people who've had out-of-body experiences to see if there's anything that unites them, if they have anything in common. And what they found is that there's a particular part of the brain which is not working properly in people who have out-of-body experiences. And it's a part of the brain which receives information from lots of different senses about your body and integrates them together. So because that part of the brain is not functioning properly, you experience yourself outside of your body. There was a piece of research that was published a few years ago, a researcher in Switzerland called Olaf Blanke, and I was fortunate when he discovered this to be able to talk to him. And he could induce these sensations in people by deactivating a certain region in their brain and he asked them because they were doing this in people who were having brain surgery but were awake at the time and all of the people said that they experienced a sort of shadow person who was themselves but a little bit behind and to the side of themselves and when he gave them something to take they would say, oh, they're, they're trying to get hold of it. And they, they couldn't really grapple with the fact that, that it was them who was reaching out to take something. They, they experienced this other person trying to get hold of whatever he was offering them. Mm, it sounds really spooky, doesn't it? I worked in Professor Blanke's lab for, for four years before coming to Cambridge, and I met a patient who'd had this experience. It's called feeling of a presence. It sounds really spooky, and it's... Yeah, they feel like somebody is constantly behind them and always around about one metre behind them. And usually they can't see them. It's just a feeling. So you might have had it if you walk down um, a street on your own in the night and you, you just sort of feel that someone's behind you, even though you can't hear it or see it. So these patients have this feeling all of the time. Um, and again, it's caused by a particular part of the brain um, which receives information from our body and what seems to be happening is that usually your brain should create a model of just one of you but what's happening in these patients is the brain is sort of duplicating that so it's as though there is there are two of you and that other you is experienced as this presence it's quite common though isn't it when when you get people actually describing this experience it's a very consistent and it's a very common description that they give it's very consistent yeah there's always the feeling of um, the self is outside of the body, which is really hard to imagine. You take it for granted that we experience ourself in our body, usually in our heads. It might feel like yourself is sort of behind your eyes. But in these people, the self is always outside of the body and always above the body as well. So there's always an experience of elevation. So, yeah, exactly. The reports are very consistent across different people, um, which does 
which is in keeping with this idea that it's, it's the same brain region, it's the same abnormality which causes the problem um, in all people. Haven't some researchers like you attempted to find out whether or not people really are going out of their body by hiding things in operating theatres, for example, in places you could only see if you were really having an out-of-body experience and then questioning people afterwards to see if they spotted that you'd written, hello, you're a liar, on the top of the light um, so that unless they had floated up to the ceiling and were looking down, then they wouldn't report the words were there. Yes, exactly. I think it's some scientists in Southampton are involved in this. So they've got some um, people in an accident and emergency hospital to collaborate with them. And they put these cards or pictures right very high up in the room where people are having a, a cardiac arrest, their heart is stopping, to see if they, they do go up there and they're able to report back what the picture was. Um, uh, they started that a few years ago. Um, I haven't heard of any positive reports yet, so. but you never know. Any questions from the audience? My name is Catherine from Newmarket. You laugh about a cardiac arrest, having these out-of-body experiences, but I have experience of a patient. I have many experiences as a nurse, and if this room was full of nurses, 80% of them would be able to tell you a story. But going back to the cardiac arrests, sometimes they're successful, believe it or not, and the people say that they were up in a corner looking over themselves and there's no way they could make up what we did to them. But they would tell you in detail what has happened to them. Yeah, I'm sure it can be difficult to explain these cases. I can't explain it. I don't know. I imagine they're telling you something like, while my heart had stopped, um, you pressed this button on that machine and then another person came in or whatever. I mean, what's happening in an out-of-body experience is your brain is receiving this information about what's going on in the world and then it's somehow reconstructing it in a in a way so that you experience the room from a different perspective. So it could be that, you know, they hear... A, a, mach a machine being switched on, they hear somebody walking into the room and then that is integrated into their out-of-body experience and that's why they say that they saw those things but actually it could have been that they only heard them and then they experienced them as though they saw them. I mean, that's how I would try and explain it in a scientific way. Chris French. There's a lot of research on out-of-body experiences and a lot of research on near-death experiences. One of the kind of questions that I would always raise here is that there are some people who claim that they can have out-of-body experiences more or less at will by doing various kinds of mental exercises, meditation, etc., etc. Now, that would be very, very easy to test. Nobody's doubting the experiences. The experience of a near-death experience can be incredibly profound. It can be life-transforming. The experience definitely happens. The question is, what is it? Is it really a glimpse of some kind of afterlife or is it a very, very rich and powerful hallucination? And I would say the, the evidence very strongly supports the latter rather than the former. Has anyone else got any questions or, or experiences? Naomi from Cambridge. Um, I've seen two different members of my family have hallucinations and one was visual hallucinations, my sister when she had malaria, and another one was my daughter when she was sleep-deprived, she had auditory hallucinations. And having seen those both, I can believe anything. They were, both people were completely convinced that there, something was happening, but it was, it was obvious to the rest of us that it was just a hallucination. Uh, Chris French. 
there's a strong tendency for people to react very defensively if you say, well, maybe you were hallucinating. Because what they equate that with is, you're saying I'm crazy. And that's just not true at all. We can all hallucinate under the right conditions. And, I mean, surveys show that typically around about 20% of the population, people who don't need any kind of psychiatric care whatsoever, will report having hallucinations of various kinds. Well, let's see if we can demonstrate some abnormal perceptions. Ginny and Hannah, over to you. So Ginny is just prepping up our experimental table here. And what she's got is um, a white piece of cardboard that's standing up vertically on the table. And it's going to act as a barrier. And we've also got on the table a fake hand. Now... Who can be our little volunteer for this experiment? Oh, well, there's a lot of keenness. Um, what's your name and how old are you? Um, I'm Lottie and I'm 11. OK, so what I need you to do is sit down on that stool and then we're going to put both your hands on the table for me. OK, now we're going to make sure your left hand is behind the screen so you can't see it. And in the place where it kind of should be, I'm going to put the fake hand. Then we're going to drape this shirt over you. You can't see your left hand at the moment, can you? No. No. And what's Ginny doing to your hand at the moment? She's got some wooden sticks and is running them down my fingers. And you're looking now at the fake hand where she's also rubbing the chopsticks across the fingers. And so she's doing exactly, she's mirroring the action on the fake and prosthetic hand and also the guinea pig's real hand. And um, is it, how's it starting to feel? Because you're just staring at the, the prosthetic hand now. Is it quite mesmerising? It is, it is kind of feels like the prosthetic hand is my actual hand oh really ah so it's almost like your brain is starting to represent the fake hand as your own hand well Ginny in that case do we want to do something else to the fake hand rather than just tickle it gently with um, chopsticks do you think so Ginny's now going to get a giant hammer Lottie's face there was priceless. Lottie, how, how did that feel? Have you recovered? No. <laughs> what do you think just happened? I kind of snapped back into reality. Did you think that your hand was being hit by a hammer at some point? Yes. <laughs> but you now realise? It wasn't. It was the prosthetic hand. A big round of applause for Lottie. <laughs> What on earth was going on in Lottie's brain there? Ginny? Our brains have to work out all the time what is our body and what is not our body. What's the microphone you're holding, all of that sort of thing. And what it does to do that is it combines different information it's getting from its senses. So most of the time we can see our hands and we can also feel them. So if you see something being prodded and feel roughly the same thing it's a pretty good guess that that's your hand that's being prodded. So what we were doing here is we were really confusing Lottie's brain by having her get the same feelings as what she could see happening on a hand that wasn't really hers. And that was tricking her brain. It was making her brain think that that rubber hand was probably her hand because she could feel what was happening to it. Or at least that's what it seemed. So then when I got out my um, large 
heavy metal hammer and <laughs> thumped it down on this hand that she'd started having the feeling that it belonged to her. Of course, poor Lottie jumped back, thinking I was about to hit her with a hammer. I wasn't, and it didn't hurt at all, did it? Nope. No, so it didn't actually hurt her. But it gives you that moment of panic that something big and heavy is coming towards your body. And it feels like it, it was her body, even though it actually wasn't. Now, Jane, is that something similar that you do to induce these experiences in people? Yeah, so instead of having um, just a hand, what you could do is have a whole mannequin um, because you want people to experience that their self is somewhere different to their body. Um, so the experiences I generate are not as strong as an out-of-body experience, um, but usually I would... Um, have somebody standing in a room they'd be wearing sort of virtual reality goggles like oculus rift or something um, and then a video camera would film them from behind the virtual reality goggles are connected to the video camera so then they suddenly see their double standing in front of them which is quite spooky and then somebody has a long stick like you were using on the hand um, and then you tap the person's back with the stick so they can feel the tapping on their back and see the tapping on their double in front of them. And people start to experience then that their body is actually over there where the virtual body is and that their self is outside of their physical body. Um, so that's how I try and create out-of-body experiences in healthy people. It's a little bit similar. Do you hit but them it with does, a hammer? Um, uh, what some other researcher does is uh, get a knife... <laughs> <laughs> and it looks as though they're stabbing it and they also get a big fright uh, like Lottie did So what do you learn by doing this? I mean it, it is exciting, I have done that and it really is very strange to mm. experience when you feel you're not in your own body but why is this important, us understanding this? Mm. It's interesting to understand how an out-of-body experience works to start with but my, my research in general is looking at how the brain creates a sense of self how on earth does it generate feeling of who you are all these things that we take for granted that ourself seems to be inside our body inside our head that we know this body is ours we don't experience somebody else's body as ours so how does a brain create this thing which is the most important thing in the world to us ourself so it relates to to that really and it's only by manipulating your sense of self in these kinds of experiments that you can try and work out how the brain creates the normal sense of self that we sort of take for granted from Anglia Ruskin University. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Jane Aspel. You're listening to The Naked Scientists and we're looking at the science of the supernatural. I'm Chris Smith and next we're going to talk to a professor of the public understanding of risk who was also interested in coincidence. Hello, David Spiegelhalter. Good to have you with us. Hello. So tell us a bit about your research. What actually do you do? And is it risky? Oh, very, very. Well, the risk, the risk is, of course, you know, it all going wrong. But let's see if, if uh, coincidence is working here tonight. I'm interested in strange things that happen to people, that people say, whoa, fancy that. And remember some of these things, the stories I've got, people remember for the rest of their lives some of the strange things that happen. Well, like what? Well, we collect them. We've got a website, Cambridge Coincidences, and we've got thousands of them. And the, the, some of the most popular ones, that you could tell um, how old some of these are, how long they've remembered them, because they're about public telephone boxes. Um, I think we've got four now where someone's walking along the street, an old red public telephone box. It rings as they're going past it, and they think, oh, I might as well answer it. They answer it, and it's for them. <laughs> yeah. 
what I wonder, wonder if anything strange has happened tonight. I mean, there's about 70 people in the audience. Um, I've actually asked you to write down your birthday, so I've got them. Now, I wonder, would it be strange, there's 70 people, would it be strange if two people in the room had the same birthday? Is that strange? Hand, hands up, this audience, if you would be surprised if someone if in this room had, had the, the same, same birthday, birthday as you. Okay. Oh, yeah. blimey. This okay. is a sceptical audience. So about, yeah. fi- about five yeah, or they six might be best friends. What happens if two people. people in the room walked in with the same birthday and happened to sit very close to each other? Now, that might be quite... Would that be quite cool? Come on, you miserable lot. It would be cool. It would be cool. Okay, stand up. If you were born on the 27th of March. Oh, quite a long way. Quite a long way. So okay. We have one lady and one man, and they're on yeah, the opposite down, side of down. the auditorium. Okay, stand up if you were born on the 6th of February. Ooh, opposite sides of the room. This is terrible. It's a good hit rate so far, David. Yeah, stand up if you're born on October the 6th. Not bad. About eight, six, seven feet away from each other. We should point out each time we're getting about two people standing up. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, So we've got each time you've had a pair of people sharing Yeah, I'm not choosing these dates at random. So um, the sort of stories that people report to us, the classic coincidence, I don't know anyone's had these when they meet a stranger... And suddenly they find this this connection with a stranger. They went to the same school, or they, um, you know, they, they know somebody in common. The usual thing. We we get. I, I was just looking through the ones people have sent in just in the last week. Somebody meeting something and finding out that they lived in the same house. The other one is finding a connection with someone you know, um, someone you know, and then and and then again finding this very strange connection. Um, we've had one, a beautiful one, a married couple uh, who discovered they were being both born in the same bed. When they got married, yeah, they found they had been both born in the same little village in Germany, which only got one one little hospital and one little bed where all the babies were born. Another one, we another one. People have just sent in a married couple who discovered that uh, they'd both been in hospital as children, both at exactly the same time. Yeah, and there are these wonderful, strange ones where the um, the man. Uh, there's a picture of the of the husband when he's a boy sitting on the beach, and there's his wife just walking along behind. <laughs> On the beach. But isn't the whole point of every single one of these examples is notable because it's exceptional? Whereas all of the other benign things that happen in people's lives that don't have these bizarre coincidences attached to them, people just ignore. Exactly. There's so many million things that happen to us all the time. There's, there's inevitably going to be some strange things that happen. For example, who was born on the 2nd of September? Oh, Two not bad. Again. Not bad, about six feet. Right, OK. How about on 10th of January? Oh, miles away. That's useless. Useless. You're all deliberately sort of... There's this powerful force that's making people sit at opposite ends of the room if they've got the same birthday. But cool, there's a lot of people in here with the same birthday. But, but David, isn't it a coincidence that none of the people with the same birthday are sitting together? No, no, no. Wait, wait. I haven't finished. I haven't finished. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. OK, so um, and the other ones I love are where people rediscover objects. Um, it was lovely. Someone sent one in recently um, where they had you know, carefully stenciled on a lovely picture on their chest of drawers and then they'd given it to a friend and the friend had gone away a hundred couple of hundred miles and then years later this woman had moved and to this new town and she had a friend next door invited her into a room and there was the chest of drawers <laughs> complete stranger 
that. So when these things happen to people, they go, whoa, that's really cool. And people in the past um, have invented theories for why these things happen. Um, a guy called Camera had this theory of seriality. It was this sort of force that caused these strange things to happen more than they should. And Jung had this idea of synchronicity. This is definitely to do with premonitions as well, that we could feel things happening before they did. We banned premonitions from our website. We're not allowed. I don't like, I don't let them go in there. I would only accept premonitions if people told me them before the event happened. <laughs> Afterwards, it's cheating. Okay. 7th of March. Oh, they're all sitting next to each other. Pretty good, pretty good, but not quite there. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see. So, um, yeah, th those are the sort of things. Oh, and then there's numbers. Um, you know, people, the pin number keeps on cropping, same pin number. Someone wrote in and said, you know, there's the same pin number for my child's primary school and the bike lock at work. <laughs> and but these things happen. They happen, the other thing is that I've got, we get a lot of people writing to us saying, these things keep on happening to me. It's really, you know, it's really you know, actually quite disturbing. These things happen to me all the time. I keep on noticing, noticing these connections between everything. And I'm afraid, I do believe they do happen to some people more than others. I really do. They never happen to me. <laughs> Coincidences never happen to me. I once, actually, no, no, it's not true. I once had someone phone me up when I was on the train about a story about a bacon sandwich while I was re eating a bacon sandwich. But that's the only time it's happened to me. And it was so obvious I couldn't miss it. Now, the point is, now, why don't they happen to me? Now, I'm the sort of person who goes around staring at the ground. I never notice what's going on around me, and I never speak to anybody at all. I'm miserable. I could sit next to someone in the train for hundreds of miles and not utter a word. So these things never happen to me. But if you're the sort of person who sits next to someone in the train and starts talking to them, or you're the sort of person who actually notices what's going on around you and then notices, oh, I saw that person earlier in the day, then that's who they happen to. The, the coincidence happens. So we have people, they happen to them all the time because they notice things and they talk to people. You know, I could sit next to my long-lost twin are separated from at birth and I would never know because I just get up without speaking to them you know so who knows how many things I've not noticed so so what I'm amazed at is not how many coincidences there are but how few there are I'm I'm afraid I failed rather on the sitting next to each other I got quite close but there were six pairs of seven pairs of people that shared birthdays in this room which I think is quite a good coincidence any questions for David on the science and study of coincidence? Anne from Canada. Um, I'm just wondering how you go about studying this. Are you using numbers and statistics and probability to study how coincidence happen? Or? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a statistician. I work in the math department here. So where possible, we try to do the maths. So the people sharing birthdays, I can work out exactly what the chance is of various pairings and this thing. I know that if there's 23 people in a room, there's a 51% chance two of them share the same birthday and so on and so on. So I can do all those calculations. And sometimes on the pin, on the pin code, you can do the maths. You can do quite com the chance of, um, does anyone share a birthday with their parent? Anyone got the same birthday as their mum or dad or anything like that? Anyone got a birthday this anyone, year? Anyone got a birthday this year, yeah. <laughs> anyone got a birthday, share, share it with a brother or sister? Anyone got the same birthday? Yeah, no, who isn't a twin? That doesn't count. Yeah, no, that doesn't count. That's cheating. Because we, we've got, I think, five examples of people where there's three siblings, all with the same day, but in, born in different years. So they're all born on each other's birthday. And the chance of that happening, we know, is 135,000 to one, which is rare. It's extremely unusual for it to happen. 
Except it happens every year in this country because there's 160,000 third children born every year in this country. And just by chance, they're going to, there's going to be at least there'll be one. You can expect one to match, have an older brother and sister born on the same day as well. So they come up in the news. If you Google three birthdays on the same day, they'll come up all the time. And the Daily Mail always gets the odds wrong and <laughs> says it's 48 million to one, which it isn't. So. Ladies and gentlemen, David Spiegelhalter. Callum from Streatham. Are you destined um, for each coincidence? So if you keep crossing paths with someone else, is it destined for you to always meet with them or mix with them? Whoa. <laughs> oh, that's a big question. That's a big question. Um, that's, that's quite a tricky one, really, because you're really talking about almost predestination. Is everything we do actually sort of pre, pre just decided? And we don't exactly, we don't actually choose ourselves. There's no randomness, no free will, um, which is uh, a reasonable argument that some people have got. There's actually, you know, all our fact that we don't know what's going to happen is just because we don't know. It's not that it's, it is predecided. We just don't know what it is. Um, I, I don't have a too strong an opinion on that at all. Um, what I say is that the fact that we don't know means it might just as well be random because we don't know. And we don't want to know. Who would like to know? What are they going to get for Christmas? Yeah, it's always some. Yeah, yeah, look, 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 all the kids, I want to know what they're going to Christmas. Come on, live with uncertainty. But the grown-ups don't. No, look at this. No, adults quite, are quite happy about it. Okay, let's say, if I were a great all-powerful being that could tell the future, and I could tell you how long you were going to live, who would like to know? Yes, look at these kids, I want to know. Why do you want to know? I would say the young people are the ones who want to know. Why do you want to know? Sophie from Blenheim. I want to know because then if you, if you were going to live a really long life, yeah. then you could plan it. Yeah, exactly. But then if you weren't, then yeah. you could think, well, what's the most important thing I need to get done in my life and yeah. do that first? Exactly. Good. run up a big bill on exactly. the credit card. Exactly. Well done. Well done. Yeah, yeah. No, Exactly. If you knew, you could plan it. And so that's, that's a very sensible thing to do. But most people notice that actually, as you get older, <laughs> you're actually prepared to embrace a little bit more uncertainty in your life. So quite, and you quite like it. So uh, I think that's a really interesting age profile in that. But unfortunately, I am not an all-powerful, all-knowing being. So I can't tell you. David Spiegelhalter, thank you very much. <laughs> Who would like to see a bit of magic? We're joined by Gustav Kuhn, and you're a magician, but you're also a psychologist, is that right? Yeah, I started off as a magician, and sort of my interest in magic really led me to study psychology, and now I study the science of magic. If we, if we look at science, aren't we going to ruin the fun of magic? Well, I don't think so. I mean, magic is very interesting in that magicians have developed really very powerful techniques to manipulate your perception. And by studying some of these techniques, we can actually work out quite a lot about how the brain works. Can you show us a trick then? Yeah, I'll show you a couple of tricks. OK, so I'm going to try and describe what you're doing for our radio audience. So you've got a ping pong ball and you're throwing it up and down in one hand uh, and it's gone. <laughs> so you threw it up and I saw you catch again. Then you threw it again, and I saw you catch it again. Then you threw it again, and it disappeared. Yeah, so this is known as the vanishing ball illusion, and it's actually it's very, very simple. How many of you saw a ball move up on the last throw? 
that's that's at least a third of the audience think they saw it going up. So about a third of the audience. So what's happening here is I've got a ball and uh, I throw it up in the air a couple of times and on the final throw I just pretend to throw it up but in fact it's actually held inside my hand. Now, what's very interesting about this illusion is that most people actually experience a ball moving up and then disappearing somewhere sort of like between me and the ceiling, even though the ball hasn't actually left my hand. We're getting lots of nods from the audience, people who definitely thought they'd seen that ball. And so this is a really nice example to demonstrate that really what you're seeing is not necessarily the way the world is, but it's much more related to the way that you expect the world to be. So because you're expecting the ball to be kind of like leaving the hand, that's why you actually experience the ball as sort of like moving up. And is what you were doing with your hand and the fact that you actually followed it with your eyes, is that important as well? Yeah, so in magic, social cues are very important, so where I'm looking. So if I do the same illusion again, but this time I'm just looking at the hand that's holding the ball, well, the effectiveness of the illusion is really reduced. And what this shows us is that our brain is automatically picking up cues to predict what the world is going to be like in the future. And I can show you another example that sort of like highlights the importance of these social cues as well. Who wants to see another trick? I think they'd like to see another one. So this is, again, is a very simple trick. I've got a green lighter here on the table. There's a green lighter on the table, right? You're lighting it and clicked your fingers. Oh, uh, it's gone. So it was in your left hand. You lit it. You waved your right hand over the top of it. Then you opened your right hand. It definitely wasn't in your right hand. But then you also opened your left hand and it wasn't in that hand either. Is that what everyone else saw? So can we just have a show of hands of how many of you saw how the light had disappeared? Oh, we've got a few hands. What did you think? I saw him dropping it. With- Whoa. Oh. Gustav, you've been caught out. You dropped it, apparently. So let me, I'll do exactly the same thing again. Right, so you've lit the lighter, you've waved your right hand and clicked, you've... Oh, it's on your lap. <laughs> so now, how many of you saw how the lighter disappeared? OK, most of you saw it at that time. Yes, yeah, so the lighter was really just dropped. So wait, the way this is not actually a real magic trick. I was kind of, I'm using misdirection to sort of like demonstrate really how little of the environment that you're normally aware of. So what's happening is I'm picking up the lighter. I light it, so we've got a bright flame, and this flame will actually capture your attention. I then pretend to take the flame with my hand, and I'm using my social cues, so I'm using my gaze to distract your attention and move your attention from the lighter to my other hand. So we're all watching your right hand, which you've been waving around over the flame and you've brought away from it. So we stop looking at your left hand, the one that had the lighter in. Yes, so no one's attending to the left hand holding the lighter. I'm looking at the other hand. I'm snapping my finger so you can hear a sound. I'm moving it, hopefully misdirecting your attention and therefore preventing you from seeing the lighter drop. Well, one of the remarkable things about visual perception is that I'm kind of looking out here in this audience and I feel like I'm aware of most of the things that are actually going on around me. Yet, in actual fact, once we start probing our visual awareness, we realise that you're actually only aware of a really very small fraction of the information. So although you think you'd see things, in actual fact, most of the time, unless you're actually attending to them, you don't necessarily see them. And in a lot of our research, we use eye tracking that allows us to measure exactly where people are looking. And what's really remarkable there is that people can actually be looking at the lighter 
and yet they still don't see it. And of course, intuitively, you think that, well, surely, if I'm looking at something, well, then I should be able to see it. But what a lot of this research is really telling us is that if your attention has been distracted, you just won't see it, even if it's really right in front of your eyes. Amazing. Gustav Kuhn from Goldsmiths University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. This week, we're looking at the science of the supernatural, the super spooky. Up next is Deborah Hyde, who is actually the editor of Skeptic magazine. Tell, tell us about your magazine and what, do you, what sort of things do you publish, Deborah? Skepticism includes a lot of areas. It can include cryptozoology, for example, people who believe they've seen something like the Beast of Bodmin Moor or Bigfoot, um, perhaps people who feel that they've been abducted by aliens or even fairies, as would have been more fashionable 100 years ago. And we're interested in an evidence base for things. We're interested, rather than in our perceptions, which I think we've seen this evening, can be so frequently faulty. We're interested in the evidence to see what's real and what isn't. And what about these consistent stories of of beasts, of bodmen and vampires and all that kind of thing? Where do they come from? Um, Vampires were probably a misunderstanding of normal processes of decomposition. They just happened at a specific time in history. Um, It was a couple of centuries ago, really, and and the reason that the stories came out when they did was political. What is a misunderstanding of the process of decomposition? Our ancestors, for very, very good reason, didn't understand decomposition the way we do. We can uh, study these things scientifically and safely, but years ago you wouldn't keep corpses around for the very good reason that they were um, a hygiene problem. So, for example, when a a body goes into rigor mortis, as is perfectly normal, leaving it out for a little while, you would would realise that actually the flexibility comes back. So if people saw a body that had regained its flexibility, they might think that it was actually still quite lifelike, that it hadn't passed over to the other side. What if it had failed to decay? What if you didn't have bones in a coffin anymore? What if you actually had flesh? And if you've got, if somebody buried in winter, for example... The ground's very hard and it's very cold. You can, in effect, put people in a freezer for six months. It's not necessarily that unusual that they wouldn't be a skeleton yet. But it would be quite unusual and quite scary for people who didn't understand this that there were other variables at work. But but where did this whole idea of this fetish for sinking your teeth into someone's neck come from? That was much later, and we we understand it. We understand that if a creature has its blood taken out, that it it dies. So it was thought that there was a life force attached to it. Um, And literally the blood being taken out is, is a bit more of a literary trope. That comes later with all of the romantic literature. And what about werewolves? I've seen the were-rabbit, Wallace and Gromit. That's really good. Um, But what about the werewolf? Well, that's a really interesting thing that you should mention, the were-rabbit, because when I do a slideshow, I show a list of all of the animals that can potentially turn into were-animals in uh, in folklore, commonly uh, throughout the world. And I have creatures like hyenas and tigers and cats and jackals and is there anything that you can think that actually unites those types of creatures what what's a similar theme freddy from little downham they're all four-legged and they're all sort of in the same sort of like cat family or with maybe a few exceptions there are there are cats there are definitely a lot of cats um are there any other similarities between those kinds of things the habits of those creatures the kinds of things they do 
Charlie, I'm from Coldicott, and they all have big teeth. Sharp they teeth. do. They have big teeth, and big teeth are for hunting. That's the thing about all of these creatures is they're apex predators. They're incredibly powerful. And it seems that if people want in their minds to, to think of somebody turning into an animal, that nobody would take that great power and turn into a hamster. <laughs> What is the sort of modern-day equivalent? Because obviously those things came along because people were troubled by not actually understanding the basis of the science that was going on. Have people now reinvented new threats and new sorts of equivalents based on their more modern understanding of the world around them? Has, has the interpretation moved on? I think it would be a mistake to assume that just because we live in a technologically-based society that people still don't have these kinds of beliefs. There are very prevalent New Age beliefs. People believe in angels and things like that. And the thing that's interesting to notice, if, if you go into history, that so many of these creatures are very, are very dangerous and they're quite random. And so was life. An awful lot of people died prematurely in historical times. We, it's very easy for us to forget the effect that antibiotics and vaccinations and um, safe midwifery processes have, have had, the, the, that it's had on human death rates. In medieval times, there was about a one in ten chance that you would die giving birth, and it's very, very unusual now. These days, if you talk to people about supernatural creatures, they're quite often likely to believe in lovely things that help them out because our lives are benign and safer. Uh, any questions, Georgia? Do you think these beliefs are good for people to have or do you think they're more damaging? It varies. The, it's very noticeable in history that when there are random environmental factors when people when there are wars uh, when there are epidemics when there is um, mad inflation or something like that that people get very panicky and they're likely to scapegoat other people it seems to be tremendously satisfying for groups of people to look to blame one person and then to perform a ritual to get rid of that person um, or to get rid of that effect that's happening now it doesn't actually work but it makes people feel better temporarily and you can see that with witch hunts and things like that so sometimes it's not particularly nice but it makes people feel temporarily better even though they can be wrong and they can do very terrible things and in some ways I think that belief in the supernatural has been very useful for hygiene type purposes you know keeping corpses separate from people we don't we don't bury the dead under the house with a few exceptions we bury them in graveyards and things like that so this uh, the sense of the sense of contagion that we have uh, which can feed into supernatural constructs is also actually very good at avoiding disease Ginny and Hannah. Can we have a final volunteer to help us make some ectoplasm? I'm Callum from Streatham. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us on stage, Callum. And Ginny, you've got here a lovely Perspex bowl, which is nice and clean for the moment. And you've also got some PVA glue. So the kind of glue that you get in your school art class. Okay, so Callum, what I need you to do is just put a little blob of that in the bottom of the bowl. So this is just standard PVA glue. Just tip some into that. Yeah, that'll do. Stop there. So that's probably about half a tablespoon, would you say, Callum? Um, I would say that. <laughs> Good. Now, just because it's a bit more fun, we've got some green food colouring. Do you want to tip just a little drop in there and give it a stir around? Callum, what's it looking like now? It's looking like snot. It's a nice bright green colour, isn't it? I'm just going to add a little dash of water. And can you stir that in for me? Have a feel of the kind of texture of it. What does it feel like? It's quite runny, but still quite yeah. thin. 
sort of gluey but quite runny glue because we've stirred in a load of water. And um, it was kind of dripping off your fingers there, wasn't it, Callum? Yeah. So now what I have here is spray starch. Have you ever seen this before? No. Do I take it you don't do a lot of ironing at home? That is correct. (laughs) Those of you who do do ironing may have seen this before. Um, You spray it on your shirts and then you iron them and it makes them nice and crisp and fresh. So it's just just the sort of stuff you might find in the laundry cupboard at home. And I'm going to spray some in the bowl and I need you to stir it in for me, okay? Okay. So what's happening as we're stirring in the starch? Um, It's starting to thicken the um, liquid. I'm going to put a bit more in. Give that a good stir. Starting to thicken even more. Can we see it's almost going kind of stringy as I pick it up? Let's put some more in. Keep going. Okay. Oh, wow, that's transforming before our very eyes. Callum, what's happening there? Um, It's starting to combine together and become stronger and harder. So now it's started sort of pulling away from the side of the bowl, hasn't it? We've got a big oozy lump. Do you want to get your hands in there now? Yes. <laughs> um. So it's now coating Callum's hands and just stringing down completely. Callum, how does that feel? Quite cold. <laughs> Quite soapy. Sort of slimy, isn't it? But look, if you pick it up really, really quickly and sort of roll it round between your hands, you can actually almost get it to form a sort of ball. And then as soon as I let go, it goes back to being liquid. Can you see that? Okay, let's try adding a bit more. It's kind of jelly-like. So So the more starch we've added, the more solid it's become. And it's gone from being entirely liquid to being this kind of stringy gloop that you can actually sort of roll around in your hands. It's almost like flubber. And if we kept spraying the starch in, it would get firmer and firmer and firmer as you go so you can if you try this at home you can experiment with adding different amounts of starch to make a firmer or a wetter slime so Callum can you come up with some idea for why you think this might be happening why do you think adding starch to glue might make it more solid and slimy like um is it something to do with the chemical reaction that is taking place Ooh, Ginny! <laughs> Very good answer. So what you have is PVA glue. It's a long chain molecule. So if you imagine every row in this room, if you held hands with the people next to you, then each of you would be a polymer, a long chain molecule like PVA. What's happening when we're adding the starch is that it's joining those molecules up. So then if you imagine, well, you're still holding hands with the people next to you, but if a few of you reached back and grabbed the hand of the person behind you so that all the lines are joined up. Now, originally, when you were just holding the hands of people next to you, if I'd asked you to move, you could quite easily have moved. One row could have gone left and the next row could have gone right. And that's why the PVA can move around. It can sort of, the molecules can slide over each other. When we add the starch and it causes those molecules to join up, like when you joined hands with the person in front or behind you, the molecules can't slide over each other as easily. They're what we call cross-linked, and that makes this harder, stretchier material. Now, they can still slide a bit because they haven't cross-linked all that much, but the more starch we add, the harder it'll get for them to move around because the more of you would be holding hands with the people in front of you, and that makes a harder, firmer mixture. And that's actually the same thing they do to rubber. 
to make the rubber for your tyres and things, they add sulphur, and that cross-links the rubber molecules, making it firmer, so you get nice, hard, bouncy tyres. You wouldn't want tyres that were made out of something like this slime. <laughs> Show your appreciation, please, to Callum and Ginny and Hannah. Well, that is it for this week's edition of The Naked Scientist, where we've been exploring the science of the supernatural. Thank you very much for listening. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith. Thank you very much to Ginny Smith and Hannah Critchlow for Kitchen Science and to Georgia Mills for production and Tim and Amelia, the interns, for social media support. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.